With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, I am grateful to be part of the pastoral team here at Cornwall Church. And I'm grateful for a senior pastor that has confidence in that team and invites us, Pastor Kip and Pastor Scott and Pastor Bill and others, to take this platform on his behalf. Now, do we have different backgrounds? Absolutely. Do we have different presentation styles? You bet. But despite what is unique about us, we stand unified on faithfully preaching God's word. Unified. It's how we operate as pastors. It's the name of this series, and today in our text, we'll see it's the call for the church today. Before we dive in, I'm Brian Mengel. I'm our campus pastor at our Skagit campus location. It's great to welcome you here in Bellingham, to those watching online in Boca, and certainly to those on, uh, in Skagit watching on the big screen. If you've got your Bible or the Bible app, if you'd open to Ephesians 2 as we pick up where Paul's letter left off last week as he talks to the church at Ephesus and once again uses the same model, presenting and contrasting the past and the present. Contrasting the past and the present. And that should sound familiar to us because he uses the same model of then you were and now you are. The same format he used last weekend in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Paul begins with two words. He says, therefore, remember. I've said up here before that in Scripture, when you see the word therefore, ask yourself, why is there a therefore there? It's an important word. It's saying, in light of everything I have said, then this. His therefore is reminding us or directing us to look backwards at several things he shared up to this point not just from last weekend, but all the way when Pastor Bob kicked off the series, remembering that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, remembering that God chose us and adopted us according to the pleasure of his will. It brought him joy to create and adopt and choose us, remembering our redemption is exclusively through the blood of Jesus Christ and remembering it is by grace we are saved 
through faith have nothing to do with our own doing. Keep in mind, Paul is talking to people who not long before were full-blown pagans. They were far from a belief that the Jewish people had. They were without a moral conscience. So remembering who they were versus who they are is critical. It's critical for them to solidify that in their hearts and minds because Paul is about to get very real very fast. God's reconciliation does not end with last week's message with me rescuing me from my own sin. So he says, therefore, remember this. He continues, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Paul, using the medical practice of circumcision to describe two people groups. The Jewish people are the circumcision, and the non-Jewish or the Gentiles are the uncircumcision. The non-Jews outside the covenant of Israel, and the Jewish people knew it, and they were not shy about highlighting it. To be a Jewish person meant you were in. To be a Gentile meant you were out. More so, to the Jews, being uncircumcised meant you were more than just a Gentile. It meant you were a heathen. There was no love lost between these two groups. And so Paul is recognizing what is already known. This historical animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And if that wasn't enough... Paul continues. He says, remember this. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's saying, remember that? Do you remember? Remember when I said Paul was going to get very personal, very fast? Here is what he's doing. He is emphasizing with crystal clear clarity as to their state of as outsiders. In fact, look at this list. We see five areas where he says, remember this. He says, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. You were a foreigner without hope and without God. Look at that highlighted list and consider that reality. Paul's letter is mostly encouraging. He loves them. But I wonder how they're feeling in this Moment, because unapologetically he is speaking truth. He says they are separate from Christ. He's speaking to their distance from God. He'll circle back on this a little bit later. Salvation was part of the covenant of God with Israel, but non Jews were excluded. They had no expectation, no hope of a coming Savior. He says they were foreigners. He describes them as foreigners. I, I'm not sure if you've traveled outside the country where you didn't speak the home language. This happened to Shauna, my wife, and I as we traveled to La Paz, Mexico uh, several years ago on our first mission trip. And as the leader of the mission trip, I remember saying we have to know the language. And so we hired uh, someone to teach us Spanish over several weeks. Our team gets to La Paz and we're in the middle of the downtown metro and I have no idea what people around me are saying. I was a foreigner. I think I kept asking like, where's the baños? I, I just remember saying to myself and my team, I don't know what to do. I am lost. He's calling them foreigners. He's saying this is true of the Gentiles. As foreigners, they were lost. They didn't know what their Jewish counterparts were speaking about. 
He says they were without hope and without God. No promise to trust in. No hope of a rescue or a salvation or an intervention. No hope of a long-term future. They lived in ignorance. Now by this time, the Jews had this immense contempt for all non-Jews. They would even suggest the Gentiles were created to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was not lawful to help a Gentile woman with childbirth because it would mean the birth of another Gentile in the world. To put it simply, they didn't get along. The, the Jewish people thought they were superior and right, and they were wrong. And the Gentiles didn't appreciate being put down, but didn't know any better. You see, pride blinds us to our own faults and magnifies the shortcomings of others. It blinds us to what we cannot see, which right in front of us, but it magnifies and puts a light on the faults and the shortcomings of those around us. When we get high-centered on our own belief, our own allegiance, our own history, or maybe our own team, our value of people goes down and gets us in trouble. Take the apple cup, for instance. A storied rivalry between UW and WSU culminating in the Apple Cup every November since 1900. In fact, let's just see. Let's get a pulse on the room and certainly in Skagit as well. Boca, you don't care about this at all. But if you are a Was University of Washington a husky. You are all out purple and gold. You remember Don James. You remember Sun Dodger running around the stadium. And bow down to Washington is your ringtone. Husky fans, let me hear you. Yeah. It is like, I guarantee it's crickets in Skagit right now. Am I right? Okay. Okay, conversely, if you're a Washington State Cougar, you bleed crimson and gray. Snow doesn't phase you because you walk 12 miles in 12 feet of it to get to science class. And Butch is your boy. If you're a Coug, make some noise now. Go you're louder, but you were shorter. It's okay. No, no surprise here. Devoted, passionate fans on both sides. But sometimes that passion can get us in trouble. The moment a lighthearted football matchup becomes intentionally or hurtfully personal. A fan that goes too far or a joke that's a bit too personal. UW fans, you're so entitled. Well, Wazoo fans, you're always partying. How does it go? How is it that a football game, a simple football game, can bring out such ugliness in us? to create such division between us. You see, in football, we let division rule. And in our text, Paul knew that the past, the history was ruling. The Jews and the Gentiles could not be happy for one another. It was easier to take shots and to live in division, but that is not God's way. And how do we know that? Well, Paul would be inspired to write to the Philippians in Philippians 2. He would say this, Therefore, there it is again, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, check. If you have any comfort in his love, check. If any common sharing in the spirit or tenderness and compassion, check. Then do this, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. 
So it was because this was not God's design for unity, he did something about it. We pick up the text there. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He goes on and says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The NLT will say 2.16, Ephesians 2.16 this way. It says this, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. You see, God acted in a way they would both understand. You see, at the time, the temple consisted of a series of courts, each one a little higher than the one before. First, there was the court of the Gentiles, then the court of the women, then the court of the Israelites, then the court of the priests, and finally, the most holy place itself. The Gentiles could only access that first court. And between that court and the court of the women, there was a wall. On that wall, tablets. And on those tablets, indicators for Gentiles, if you proceed any further, you could be liable to instant death. Paul knew about this barrier because he was arrested and falsely accused for taking an Ephesian Gentile past that first court. You see what God did here? He, he found, he wanted peace, he found a purpose, he killed off hostility, and he reconciled them. He reconciled them in a very key way. He didn't make one subservient to the other. He made them equal equal to each other in their standing and before God. In other words, Christ broke the barrier of division in order to create us as one. He broke the barrier down that divided us to make us one. You don't have to look far to find the evidence of walls in our society. Perhaps it is why that Campaigns and candidates of the last decade or so have adopted this slogan, this idea of better together. We are better when we're together. You hear that in campaigns. Utilizing this reality that we live in a walls-up, divided culture. And these campaigns that say we're better together, they promise bipartisanship to bring together parties. Because our culture is very us and them. And so God, through Christ, destroyed that wall that was threatening the people that he loved. The sacrifice of Jesus' death removed all barriers. Colossians 3.11 says, In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slaved, or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. In fact, the word reconcile itself means to bring together those that have been estranged so that there's no hindrance to a unity and a peace. You see, Christ died for all, for the Jew and the Gentile, the Democrat and the Republican, the Husky and even the Cougar. Yes, he died for all. The distinction of spiritual state was no longer either you were in Christ 
or you were outside of a relationship with Christ. And when we talk about him bringing them together as one, he didn't make Gentiles into Jews or Jews into Gentiles. He produced this new oneness, this oneness that was unified as the body of Christ. Christ removed the, the barrier, the dividing wall between us and God, and now the door of salvation was wide open to anyone that was open to it. Paul continues, he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. A couple verses later, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Those far, those near, same message of peace. And through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. As Paul begins to lay out this good news, he references the proximity of God, God's nearness what a change. You were dead, now you're alive. You were far, now you're close. And practically, you know, near is better than far. Dad's in the room when you go to that Christmas program at your child's school and you walk in the gymnasium, the first thing your wife says is, let's get to the front because near is better. I've got my iPhone, I want that video of Johnny singing that song he doesn't want to sing. Near is better than far. If you were gonna to go to a Mariners game, why would you do that? If you were gonna go to a Mariners game. <laughs> I know, I love them, God loves them too. Okay, if you're gonna to go to a Mariners game, you know the Diamond Club seats that are near are better than those that are under the outfield, in the outfield, under the scoreboard. Near is better than far. Proximity changes everything, and it's through Christ Jesus that that was possible. Gentiles who are so far away now have a closeness to God. They are in the inner circle. They're in Christ Jesus. In the past, they were separate from him. They were cut off from his blessing and the salvation, but not anymore. And how is that? Paul references it again as he did last week, mentioning the Trinity, this reference to the Trinity, that God is the who and Jesus is the how and the Holy Spirit is the access. One commentator says, the idea is for someone to lead or bring another person into the presence of another higher rank. We have someone who takes us by the hand and leads us into the presence of the Lord God. We have someone who can break in on behalf of our troubles and our problems and our difficulty and our loneliness and our sorrows. Because of Christ's faithfulness, we have bold and confident access to God. The Holy Spirit takes us into his presence. Colossians 1.21 says this, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior, but now, remember last weekend, but God, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We have access now, all of us have access. Unified, we have access. He continues, Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Galatians 3.26 says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all now sons of God through faith. 
He says consequently there. It could also be therefore. In other words, with all that I've said being true, do this. Embrace unity. Stop infighting. Live as one. It's God's plan for you. The playing field is even. We're now all saved by grace, not of our own doing. It is exclusively by the grace of God. So through Christ then, we are now fellow citizens. We're fellow citizens. Fellow, engaged in some activity or condition together. We're unified in this. Our relationship with God should translate into being in relationship with one another fellowship. It's through fellowship that we live out this idea of living life together and that we find those needing encouragement, reminding those that our past does not define our future. A future with a brand new citizenship. I know something about citizenship. I've shared from this stage before that I was adopted when I was six months old from Nagoya, Japan. I have great parents. I had a great growing up. And I was naive for the longest time about my citizenship or lack of citizenship. And at some point, I would learn of my status as a resident alien. Now, I know that sounds like a sci-fi movie, but really it's a status. It's a status of a foreign-born resident who is not a U.S. citizen but has lawful permanent residency in the United States. Well, on December 5th, 2005, that changed. On December 5th, 2000... America and Canada. Canada. Canadians, I'm coming after you next. December 5th, 2005, I became a U.S. citizen. And, and with my newfound status, I inherited new rights as a new citizen. There's something about citizenship that helps you make, makes you feel part of something bigger, that you're no longer on the outside looking in, but you're on the inner circle. And that feeling I had holding this certificate, I wonder if the Gentiles felt the same way. New status, new rights, new belonging, new citizenship. Paul concludes with a final thought. He's addressed individuals and groups, and now he addresses the church. He says this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. Now let's pause for a second to look at this work crew. It begins with God as the architect. God is the architect. One commentator writes it this way, is that God is the one who is at the very beginning of it all. He's the one that, that has the ability to begin the vision, to lay out the plans, He's the one that has the capital to get it started. And he's responsible for hiring all of those that will help get the project off the ground. God is the lead. The apostles and prophets, 
These guys serve as the foundation. The Old and New Testament teachings lay the groundwork for then and now. And the Old Testament and New Testament teachers who are no longer living, their words remain as a blueprint for us in Scripture. God's a head honcho. The apostles and the prophets, they lay the groundwork. Jesus is the cornerstone. You could say he's the cornerstone, the keystone, the capstone. He is the center of it all. He's the one that would call and teach and live with and commission the apostles and pass them on and say, take this message beyond right here and right now. He's also the redeemer, the why, the how that brings about salvation. Isaiah 28, 16 says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. For a sure foundation, the one who trusts in it will never be dismayed. So you've got the architect. You've got the foundation. You've got the cornerstone. So that leaves us to be the church. We're called to be the church As he initiated this new big C church, God did some major demolition and creation at the same time. Knocking down walls, but building up a church at the same time. Jews no longer distinguished from Gentiles. Gentiles not having to become Jews to be saved. And we get our first glimpse of the church is people. Pastor Bob has said countless times, you, you are the church. Or as he dismisses, he says, go be the church. At the end of the day, this building is a building. It's a great building. But you are the church. You and I and billions of Christ followers, living and dead, we are the building. We are the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, it says, for, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building." You're God's church. So if that's the case, what is our responsibility? What's in our job description? Well, number one, to proclaim the name of Jesus quite clearly. To live in harmony with one another as the family of God. To increase his kingdom, not to put people in seats, but for his kingdom to increase for his benefit. And to understand that church is so much bigger than Cornwall Church or Cornwall Church and Cornwall Skagit or Cornwall and Cornwall Skagit and Boca. It is bigger than all of that. It's seeking unity among churches that proclaim the name of Jesus and share in the same gospel message of salvation. It is why we freely will mention Pastor Grant and CTK across the way because we are one with him. We are one with them. We're in unity together. It's why Cornwall Skagit matters. This is one church in two locations. You may not see your Skagit brothers and sisters and the amazing families that are down in Skagit in Mount Vernon, 30 minutes down I-5, but they're there and they matter and they're part of your church. We've gotta be one together. You see, church is not, cannot be about competition or rivalry. We are one. We've got to be unified. Conversely, as the church, we've got to be warned to have eyes wide open for cracks in the walls, unnecessary arguments, unreconciled 
disagreements. Quite simply, what matters is what matters. What that means is, if the music is too loud for you, it doesn't matter. (laughs) The words you sing matter. The length of the sermon doesn't matter. (laughs) The words of the message matter. You getting your seat on a Sunday morning doesn't matter. Ensuring there's an open seat for someone that's seeking after Christ matters. I marvel at how the Bible remains timeless for us. What matters then matters today. What plagued them plagues us today. Number one, church is not a solo sport. And when you became a Christian, you were born into the family of God, into his body, into his church. And it was never meant that you would be autonomous. What Jesus accomplished for us connects us to God and it connects us together as well. Number two, the church isn't a place to go. It's who you're sitting next to, who's in front or behind you this morning. Ralph Wilson says, you may be able to pick your friends, but you cannot pick your family. You are assigned to them and they you. The church is a family. It is not an exclusive club of those who are raised like you or have an education like yours or live in the right neighborhood or come from a particular race or social class. Your brothers and sisters, some of them have come from hard backgrounds, some wounded, some hurting, some healing. You don't get to choose them, but you do get to love them. Why? Because we all share one thing in common. We share in a love for Jesus Christ that we were chosen, elected by the Father to be in his family. That's what we're called to do as the church. A couple of years ago, Chick-fil-A did an experiment and turned it into a commercial. This is for you, Boca. They staged a, a broken down car and they decorated it in Alabama crimson tied decor. And on the roadside, they had smoke coming out of it, and they had some Alabama fans pulling their hair out on the way to the stadium to see if rivals of theirs would stop to help. And one by one, Florida State fans would stop and pull alongside and say, how can we help? What can we do? To ensure this wasn't just a one-way thing, they would switch it. And they'd put a Florida State car there, all decorated with flags and colors. And then one by one, Alabama fans would stop and say, how can we help? What can we do? If you see the commercial, there are two things that stand out. One, one guy says, I'm happy to help. People first. The other one says, kindness runs deeper than rivalry. Kindness runs deeper than rivalry. Listen. If you're a Husky fan, that's great. They are an awesome team. If you are a Cougar fan, incredible. But I would hope, I would wonder, above all else, I wonder, above all else, if you could say, Regardless of where your collegiate alliance lies, could you say, I am a Washington College fan? It's the heart of the matter. You can root for the Cougs, you can cheer on the Huskies, but at the end of the day, I'm a fan 
of college football in Washington State. And it may seem so simple, but it can convey so much. Because when your team loses at the Apple Cup this November, can you be happy for the other team, especially if they advance to a bowl game? This is a visual reminder because here in the Northwest, we are so passionate about our teams. We think our team is right. We think our team is best. But can we come together and say, both teams are great. My allegiance is with the Cougs, my allegiance with the Huskies, but I just want a Washington team to win. In this passage, Paul distinguishes two groups of people, and he brings them together as one holy group. And while we can believe this to be true, we have to fight for it to be reality, because the truth is, your humanness gets in the way, and you get stuck asking, what's more important, being right or being righteous? Right or righteous? Because there's plenty to argue about song selection and sermon series and the room temperature and, of course, all the theological things we could debate about. But to what end? To what end? Am I saying we can't debate, we can't disagree? Not at all. But what does our rightness really mean? And what's our motive? And who really wins? Not God, not the church. So as you sit here this morning, perhaps you are thinking you need to seek someone out in the family. Something happened at some time, and now there's division. And maybe it started as a small crack, and now the crevice is growing. And what started as something minor can now be something that is of a great division. And God hates division. He loves reconciliation, and he loves unity. It's why he created one church. So if that's you, don't let hostility reign beyond this morning. Don't let hurt reign in your heart beyond this service. Kick pride to the side and seek out who it is and make it right, because you're stuck with this family. It's important for you, it's important for them, it's important for the church, and it's most important to God. Paul implores that you and I understand and embrace this divine purpose for both the universal church and the small Cornwall church so that we can say this, and I'm skipping ahead, my apologies to Pastor Bob, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace so that There is one body and one spirit and you were called to one hope when you were called with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and a father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, the world is watching the church. Your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family, they're watching the big C church and the little C Cornwall church. And what will they see in us? Will they see us breaking down walls or building up fences. Unity in the church is at stake. So let us be a church that is unified as one, making sure this is a place that is welcome to hear the goodness of the gospel because it matters.